as we prepare together to hear God's Word preached, if you have a Bible, I'll encourage you to join with me by opening to Psalm chapter 32. Psalm 32. Again, it's a relatively brief chapter, only 11 verses. So listen as I read God's word, then we will pray and really begin to dig into this together. Listen as I read God's word. It is a masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I, and I will instruct you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit or bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the, the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask once again, as we always do whenever we open your word and begin to consider it, we ask that your spirit would stir mightily within our hearts. We understand that what we take up here at this time is the word of God. It's not story time or simply sermon time. It is our desire that you would make known to us your word and your will. That you by your spirit would illumine our hearts and minds and give us understanding of the things and the very reasons why you've given us this psalm. Lord, that it would come to us with a clarity. It would come to us bringing necessarily uh, uh, instruction, necessary correction. God, I ask that you would enable your people who are here um, to hear your word. Grant with all of the challenges and realities of our lives and, and the demands of uh, the coming week and the anxieties of the ones past that we would be able to give ourselves wholly to hearing your word. And God, I ask that you would help me to speak accurately, clearly, and simply, and that you would be pleased with all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 32, we... Began really last week uh, until I choose a book to take up again for the next series. We're kind of selecting some of the Psalms that are out of our McShane readings. Those of us who are reading through the annual Bible reading that we have on the back literature table. Which I would say, for those who don't know, we have a back literature table. A lot of people come and go from the side door and don't know that that's there. Completely free to use. But in the reading schedule, reading through... Uh, Psalms really for the second time this year and Psalm 32 is one of those Psalms that we're looking at and I want us to begin to to look at this because this in this we meet with David at a time where he is aware of his sin and sin is obviously not the most popular subject to preach on these days but it is something that the scriptures deal with repeatedly and I will say this with confidence. It is something that will likely be a part of your life until you have no life left. There is not a one of us who will in this life completely cease from sin. And it's, it's really, I think, helpful for us to see the way that uh, David is moved by the Spirit to deal with his sin in this psalm. Now, since it's a song... 
for instruction purposes, I'm going to rearrange the order just a bit. So we're going to begin by considering verses 3 and 4. And what we're, the first thing we're going to note regarding sin is the crushing of conviction. Conviction should be something that is felt. See, confession is something that someone can do with their mouth. And it can be just making sound. But in the scriptures, it's quite clear, and we're going to consider confession, that conviction precedes confession. That there is a deep and sincere and painful sense of our sin and sinfulness. The way that it is described in this psalm is like this. In verse 3, as he was in sin and practicing sin, it's considered that this psalm is one of those, like Psalm 51, that is in his awareness of his sin, having been confronted by Nathan, the things that he had done to Uriah the Hittite, the things that he had done with Bathsheba, the utter contempt for what is right, the adultery, the murder, and yet he thought he could keep it secret, didn't he? It is interesting because when he had done all of that, he called her to his house. And she came to the palace and gave birth to a child. He's just like, let's just pass this over. Let me see if after the fact, yeah, I've done a lot of things wrong, but let me just make it right now by bringing her in, making her a wife. Everything is now fixed by me. But that God would not let him go as he brought Nathan to bring those statements of, of someone who had stolen like another man's sheep and another man's goat and, and just thinking, this is not right. A sense of indignation about something so much smaller. And so he gets this understanding. When I kept silent, he had sinned. He had done what he knows is wrong in the eyes of God. And he was not dealing with it. He was not addressing it. He was not confessing it. He was just, he had sinned and he was being silent. Now this is my fear and this is a helpful thing. If we as God's children can sin and be silent and we feel nothing, what's wrong? And when we see the strength of what the Spirit stirs deep within David's soul, I think we, we, we need to begin to grasp the depth of this sin. Listen to what it says. When I kept silence, my bones wasted away. Now I'm going to say this clearly. That's obviously figurative. His bones did not simply, uh, you know, turn to mush because what would happen physically if I'm standing here and suddenly my bones wasted away? Yeah, it'd be a little heap of flesh, you know, dripping down to the floor. But, but the, it's, it, it gets that, you get that idea from that, that picture. You know, I just, I just feel so weak. I, I feel so heavy. I don't feel like I have strength. I don't feel like I can stand. My bones wasted away. And it says, through my groanings all day long. Some of the older translations say more literally, through my roarings all day long. Now what's interesting is this. He's aware of his personal sense of misery. Okay? But you know what he's not aware of? Or not dealing with? He's crying out about how bad he feels and how things are. But what he's not doing is confessing his sin. He's calling for a fix. I feel terrible. I don't feel any strength. I feel weight of the world on my shoulders. Take this weight of the world off my shoulders. But what's he not done as yet? realized that this weight is upon him, it is the hand of God upon him. Sometimes people think that, oh no, God doesn't want me to feel weak, he doesn't want me to feel sad, he doesn't want me to feel hurt. Actually, if you are in sin, if you are entertaining sin, if you are practicing sin, it is his loving discipline 
to bring the weight of his hand upon you. And it is good. And, and here that David gives this sense that he's, he knows it's, he's feeling miserable. He feels this weight. He feels this struggle. He's roaring all day long. It's relentless. And so his mouth is relentless at how much help he needs, how much strength he needs, how much improvement he desires. But you know what he's not dealing with? His sin that was at the root of this particular suffering. Now, it's important to note this in advance. Every time we're struggling, every time we're suffering, every time we're having difficulty, every time we're feeling uh, miserable, is it necessarily the discipline of God directly for specific sins? Not necessarily. It may be. Remember, with Paul, his thorn in the flesh, he had not done a specific sin, and he wanted his thorn in the flesh taken away, but such was not the purposes of God. God's grace was sufficient. It would keep his heart in a state of humble service, okay? And so we can trust in God, but it may be that sometimes the stirrings and the inward uh, 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 sense of weakness and weight may indeed be because of the hand of God in, on us because of sin, that we're not taking seriously. Listen to the way he further describes it in verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. I also want to note this. Whose hand is he saying was heavy upon him? God's hand was heavy upon him. There is that horrible dualistic way of looking at the world. That everything that makes me happy and feel good. That's God at work. Everything that makes my heart heavy and makes me feel weak, that's the enemy. The enemy's getting me down. God, you got to lift me up. The enemy's getting me down. Whereas realistically, sometimes what is pressing you down is the hand of God. Because of your entertaining of, taking lightly of, not dealing with sin. That's what's happening here. So if that is there, let's be wise. Let's pray. Let's seek God to determine. Is this an attack of the enemy? Is this a, 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 a circumstance of the flesh? Or is this the hand of God looking to humble me and bring me to repentance? Let's prayerfully work through those things. But note this. Sometimes the heaviness... Sometimes the sense of wasting away. Sometimes the crushing of conviction is the work of God in His grace and mercy. Now, I know a lot of us don't like to think of grace and mercy as accompanied with a heavy hand and misery. But to let someone continue down sin, that is not grace and mercy. To weigh them down... To make that path of, of wickedness, that path of ungodliness, one that is fraught with agony and discomfort is a mercy. A mercy we should cry out for. God, if my feet begin to wander off that path, put your hand heavy upon me and bring me back. Making the priority what? And this is an important thing for the, for the modern church. The priority isn't me being happy, happy, happy every day, every moment. The priority is that I would des so desire to please God in every facet of my life that if in some ways I'm not pleasing you, make me miserable until I'm pleasing you. Making His pleasure a higher priority than ours. He says the second half of verse 4, My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Some of these descriptions are so clear, so vivid, they really don't need me to expound upon them, do they? If we were to jump back just one psalm to Psalm 31, also dealing with the circumstances and the weight and the grief of conviction of sin, he says this. Be gracious to me, O Lord. I'm in Psalm 31, verse 9 and 10. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. 
My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years, which feels like it's very extended, with sighing, my strength fails. Why is this? Because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. He says it again. Now, now here's an interesting thing, and it's quite important. This is the crushing weight of conviction of sin that the Spirit brings. Now, here's a danger. When someone thinks that they have come through this passage, we're going to see the scripture here speaks of the conviction of sin. It speaks of then confessing that sin, and it draws attention to the covering or full forgiveness that is ours in Christ. But tragically, it's too common in the modern practice of some groups that you jump from nothing to forgiveness. You jump to forgiveness without ever journeying through the path of conviction and confession. It's just, do you want forgiveness? Isaiah chapter 57. Go there with me really quickly. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, it says this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Who is this one? This is God. This is God who's speaking. And it speaks of God in, in terms of, of great power. This great and powerful God who is lifted up. It says this. I dwell in the high and holy place. Here I, this is where I dwell. And then what does it say? And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. That people have, there has not been real conviction of sin if it does not produce contrition. Now, part of the challenge, I guess, that we do face is this if you were to go around and ask people that you meet, what is contrition? What does contrition mean? How many out of 10 people will you meet that might know the meaning of that? Because we don't speak about that. We live in a society in which terms like shame aren't known anymore. And if there's any shame that, is, uh, that anyone ever is made to feel, for whatever the cause is, anytime someone is made to feel shame for anything, there's an uprising. Oh, this person is shaming. This person is shaming. And, and, and the negative thing is that anyone should ever feel ashamed of anything. Wrong. We should all feel ashamed of our sin. In the second great awakening that took place in America, mostly in the Northeast, they started something there that there were pluses and minus to the whole idea of it. But within the meetings that they would have, these big gathered meetings, they would have rows in the front or rows off to the side, which would be called the anxious seats. The whole idea is that is for those people who, who were beginning through the words that they were hearing uh, uh, through the meetings each night to feel, oh no. Something is wrong in me. I, 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 I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I, I'm heavy. I'm weighted. Uh, I don't know what's going on. It's like the hand of God is heavy upon me. I can't sleep. I can't eat. The things that I've been hearing, I can't get them out of my mind. There would be the anxious seats. We don't have anxious seats anymore. Skip any sense of conviction of sin Skip any sense of contrition. I know that what I've done is wrong. Skip all senses of grief and tears. And people can come generally into gospel meetings with a smile on their face while unsaved. Join in the songs and enjoy that with a smile on their face. And then come forward and be saved with a skip in their step, supposedly. But what never happened? They never went through the valley of contrition. 
They never came under the sense of the conviction of sin. There was, they, they didn't get the weight of this because when we consider the weight of sin to, to see the seriousness of it, what had to take place so that our sin would not be held against us? I mean, what's the seriousness of what our sin demanded? It brought us under a curse and under the demands of death. And in order that we would not bear that curse and that we would not experience that death, what did God do? He sent His Son. And what did His Son do? He took the shame. He bore the weight of God's wrath, taking our sin upon Him on the cross. When, some, the, when someone can consider the fact, the idea in their mind, that Christ, the very sinless Son of God, would suffer as He did from the hands of men and bear what He did in the wrath of God on my behalf and be unmoved. Not that we all are, there are some people who, uh, you know, waterworks can start at a commercial, they can start crying. You know, and there are, there are other people that they don't, just don't cry. No matter what happens, they just don't cry. But that doesn't change the weight that what someone feels inside. There should be that sense of contrition. It will not always look the same. Okay? But it feels the same. And I fear that we live in a world without conviction, and a world without contrition, that knows the depth of these things. The scripture tells us concerning the Holy Spirit, when He comes in John 16, verse 8 and following, when He comes, Jesus tells His apostles, He will convict the world concerning sin. This is one of the primary workings of the Holy Spirit. We jump past that, don't we? We speak of His power to make us new creations in Christ, which is glorious. We speak of, of His empowering presence in the lives of believers, which is remarkable. We speak about the giftings that He gives us for the exercise and benefit of one another. And we glory in those things, and we should not stop. But what preceded all of those wonderful workings of the Spirit was the wondrous work of convicting. Convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he begins to unfold those things. In Jeremiah 31, it says this, verse 19, For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Part of the amazing work of the Spirit, when He brings us to the salvation that Christ has accomplished, accomplished for us, is He brings us to this place where we realize this, I am unworthy of the mercies of God. I'm unworthy of this salvation. I side with God that I deserve judgment. God would be right to destroy me because I am a disgrace. That's a powerful conviction of sin. But I'm also very thankful that the Spirit of God, He doesn't leave us there in the place of conviction. But we need a, a, re, a fresh stirring of this sense. Even in 2 Corinthians. Between 1 and 2 Corinthians. We know that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. A scathing letter. One that we uh, has not been kept for us. Because it's not necessary. It does not give any additional teaching or doctrine. It just dealt with specific sins and specific actions of them. And, and things going on there. And he says of that letter in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9 through 11. As it is I rejoice. Not because you were grieved. But because you were grieved into repenting. 
for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss for us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces regret. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also earnestness to clear yourself. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So godly grief produces what? Not only a grief for what has been done, but it, it, it stirs up with that, with that negative emotion of grief. It stirs up moving forward from that a zeal. We're not doing that again. We're not going to be about that again. We're not going to walk in that again. Not going to step in that again. Not going to live in that again. Done with that. Godly grief brings us to repentance. Not only do we see godly grief, the, the crushing of conviction in this passage, but I want us to see the completeness of confession. Verse 5 with me, if you would. The completeness of confession. It says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. The sense of that is no pretense, no hiding, no excuses. I acknowledged it. I didn't cover it. Didn't try to rationalize it. Came to the point where, where it's just full and clear. God, I did wrong. <laughs> he goes on and says, I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and forgive you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In Ezra chapter 10 verse 1, the scripture says this. While Ezra prayed and made confession weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. A very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept severely. Now, with the idea of confession, that comes with, with it, as part of that, the conviction brings that, with, with a stirring with us, with us with a zeal for repentance, and we confess our sin. What do we know from 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all our right unrighteousness. So the confession of sin does not stand on my faithfulness. I'm confessing why? Because I have not been faithful, nor will I ultimately perfectly be faithful, but he is always faithful. And when we confess, he forgives our sin. Now, I want to just say this. For those, you know, when we talk to unbelievers, when we talk to those who don't really grasp the gospel, and we try to explain this to them, all right, if someone doesn't confess their sin to God, you know, see, here in this world, when, we, when police or someone try to force a confession out of someone, they're still trying to figure out who did it. And when someone gives a confession, it helps them figure out who did it and what the details are. Listen, if someone does not confess to God, is it that suddenly he's wondering, I don't know what they've done. I don't know what they've really done. No, whether you confess or not, someone might say, I, I, don't, I don't want to confess it because I, I don't want to draw attention to it. I don't want God to know I did this. Does he not know? He knows it. He knows it better than you do. He knows how many times you've sinned in those ways. He knows the ways you've tried to cover it up after the fact. He knows the way that you've tried to excuse and rationalize away those sins. He knows it all. So that, that's why it, it is the conviction and the shame that, that leads us into confession. We don't feel shame in the moment of confession. It's the shame that brings us to confess. And we confess because we know that he knows it, but we acknowledge it before him, acknowledge our unfitness, acknowledge his perfections, and plead with him for mercy. And it's beautiful what it says at the end of that verse 5 because it says what? I said, I will confess my sins to the Lord and you forgave my iniquities. That's amazing, isn't it? 
we confess, he forgives. Now we get to go back to verse 1. And so from the completeness of confession, I would say we look to the covering of Christ, the fullness of forgiveness. Listen to what it says in verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Do you see the fullness of that? So how many sins does God count against us? When we come in full confession, we ultimately will come to know because Christ has taken upon him our sin and placed upon us his righteousness, God counts no sin against us. None. I mean, that is the absolute fullness of this forgiveness. Um, it, it, it's interesting to know that because look what it says there. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Verse 1 and 2. That phrase for blessed is the man is the same kind of thing that we get as we come to the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount. That, uh, it's an interesting study that we might end up doing pretty soon. Uh, the idea of blessed is the man throughout the book of Psalms. Blessed is, is the idea of gladness, of joy, of happiness. It is, it is from which we might derive the name Asher. Comes from this term blessed or blessedness or happiness. It, it is a powerful word. But listen, what, what was he experiencing in a real sense under the weight of his sin? Would that be a sense of blessedness? Would that be happiness? No, he was crushed under misery, but as he is able to recognize that I simply roll my sin off me, I confess it, God has in his son taken it, then what we stand absolutely righteous in the eyes of God, fully cleansed, perfectly acceptable, and to be that is blessed. And again, I want us to note this. Blessed isn't just a term. All of these are strongly experiential terms. The conviction was one of misery and agony and anxiousness and wasting away. The blessedness is one of genuine inward sense of joy and delight. It is when, uh, when Leah had given, uh, there was competition between Rachel and Leah, who could get the most kids. You remember that was going on? And then they were struggling to win that competition, so they started giving handmaidens to, to, to get more kids. And it was under that one where a child was born and Leah said, Happy am I. For God has made me happy. And so she named that child Asher. Happy am I. It was that you are going to have a child. Or you have had a child. And you take that child and you hold that child. Is that a joyful moment? I, yeah. And, and that is the sense of, of what. It, it is a real experiential thing. It's not just blessed is written down by our name somewhere but it is real and vivid united to christ we don't have to continue to bear that misery and when the conviction of sin comes upon us again which it inevitably will if we're believers we don't have to retain that we don't have to hold on to that we don't have to bear the guilt and the shame we come in confession and we know that there is complete covering in Christ. His blood has been shed. Our blood does not. In Christ we died. Such powerful phrasing given to us in the scriptures. And that's why um, Proverbs gives this warning in Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Now, what's interesting is that is, again, whoever conceals his sin. 
I can maybe conceal them from you. And maybe we can even conceal them from those very close to us. But can we hide anything from God? We've looked at so many of these scriptures in the past. What if I did it with the lights out and it's completely dark where no one can see? Can God see? The darkness is as light to him. Yeah, but what if I go into a secret room somewhere and lock the door? It doesn't matter. You could run away in the middle of the night to an isolated island where you're the only person there within millions and millions of miles where you think, now I can say anything I want, do anything I want, and no one will hold me accountable. Who's still there? Yes. So, so the, the, it, it, really the whole concept of concealing rather than confessing is really this kind of a declaration. I have no idea who God is. <laughs> because when you know who God is, what's the point of concealing? What's the point of, uh, of hiding? What's the point of pretending? Psalm 85 verse 2 says this, You forgave the iniquity of your people and you covered all their sin. The picture that's there in the concept of covering, it, it, it is used poetically synonymous with forgiveness. It, it, you know, it's kind of like the idea of, okay, we've got this stain on our living room floor. Excellent place for the couch. Right? And so you, you, you put that couch there, and now what? I don't even see it. It's as if it's not even there. The room looks great. You get that? That's the picture of covered up. Our sin, it's covered up. The terminology used when we move all the way forward to Hebrews 8 and 10 in the New Covenant is he puts it as far as east is from the west, which practically speaking is to be a measurable distance. And he remembers our sins no more. They are done. Utterly done. Utterly finished. Because they are covered in Christ. And Christ is eternal. His sacrifice is sufficient and completely covered. Well, will it at any point be uncovered? Will there be any point in which the death of Christ is not enough? God looked upon the death of his son and it pleased him. It says this in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 and following. But he, referring to Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That, I mean, knowing that, how can that not, when we understand what sin is, weigh us down? Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then down in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, it says this of Christ. Out of the anguish of his soul. And brings to us the anguish of soul. And Christ takes upon himself the anguish of soul. On our behalf. So that we don't have that anymore. That in its place we have joy. Because of that reconciliation through his blood. Which brings us peace. So that it goes on to say this. Out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one. My servant make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And actually, the New Testament goes on to forward and says, he always lives to make intercession for us. Our sin is not coming back. 
When it is covered in Christ, it's not coming back. And actually, we end up then covered in his righteousness. He covered up our sin with his own blood, and he covers us with his righteousness. There's nothing, there's nothing more glorious than that. And we don't get that picture. We don't understand that it's, oh, God, help us. And this moves us on to... Uh, Really some closing comments that begin uh, in verse 6 and following. Regarding these things, the idea of conviction, the idea of confession, the, and, and the sense of the fullness of forgiveness. He says this in verse 32. It's interesting because in verse 30, chapter 32, verse 6, not verse 32, chapter 32, verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. That's also very powerful poetic language that would make us uncomfortable. Wait a second. Let us call out to God while we can reach him because in the rush of great waters, he will not hear us. What is that talking about? Are you under the weight of conviction of sin going to call out to God? Or are you only going to wait until your, everything around you is absolutely falling apart and you cry out to him? What are you crying out to him for? Deliverance from your sin or deliverance from this misery? See, the person who's going to wait and wait and wait and just cry out to God in the last moment, deliver me from all these problems. God help me. But is not as, as God is mercifully, patiently pressing him down, coming to him and crying out to him. It, if someone is going to, it, simple for a way, don't delay. Because the only reason a person would be delaying is why? I'm not going to confess my sin because I'll wait. I, I, I remember... There was a parody once of somebody who was being shared the gospel and being presented with Christianity and, and you know, what will you do and, and are you not going to stop living this way and someday you're going to have to answer, what is your plan? And the response was, uh, I'm thinking about a deathbed conversion. I think that's going to work for me. Whoa, <laughs> why is that? Well, because then I get pretty much to do everything I want to and in the last minute I get my ticket to heaven now here's the sense a deathbed conversion though some of them can be genuine I will not question the the, the secret purposes of God I will leave that to him but how many people in their last moments near death want some sense of hope I had a dear friend whose name was Michael, who by the time they found it, he had, he had a tumor that had wrapped itself around its spine, but it was so central to his body. But by the time they found it, it was the size of a golf ball. And, and it had begun in such a way that in, in wrapped portions of his heart, and they said, yeah, we're, there's nothing we can do. You have three months left. I remember going with, with uh, my brother to his house and again sharing the gospel with him that we'd done many times through the years. But now suddenly he was more interested. And he's, got, and he's like, well, tell me what I got to do. You know, tell me what, is, what I've got to do to make sure when I die everything's good. And I thought, well, this is great. I'm glad he's interested in that, right? I was young. <laughs> And then he followed it like this, because I've got one friend who's really into new age, and he gave me this crystal, and I've got this crystal now in the window, and I've, I let the light prism through that crystal and get on me a couple times a day, and that's going to help me after I die. I got another friend who's a Native American, and he gave me this sacred feather that had gone through some ceremony, and so I am, I am absolutely ready to take whatever you've got, whatever anybody's got. Because what did he want? Hope when he dies. What did he not want? God. Alone in truth. 
His desire wasn't to draw near to God. His desire wasn't to worship God. He wasn't humbled before the Almighty God. His thoughts were only of self at every single moment. And as I told him, no, no, no. There's no other name given among men whereby you must be saved. There is only salvation in Christ. There's no hope beyond the grave. There's no forgiveness of sin. That crystal, though it's beautiful, has absolutely no contribution. And that feather, regardless of the bird it came from or what sort of smoky ceremonies it went through, it's a feather. It can't do anything for you. Your only hope is Christ. He said, but everyone thinks their way is right, so how can I know? That's so hard, isn't it? And we're stuck there, and we say, how can they know? And we want to say, because I want you to know this, I'm right. But is that more effective? No. Because you want to tell them this. Because God is right. And God has made himself known by sending his son into the world. No one ever came and lived sinlessly except Christ. No one ever gave up their life and then took it up again except Christ. And then we pray to God because we know that no one can make them know this and believe this except for the grace of God in Christ. And so we plead and we pray because only God must make himself known. That divine revelation in the gospel. So powerful. And so we see, don't delay. Because when you delay, it's not, you're not coming to God for a, because of a conviction for sin. You're coming just because you want a little bit of help. Not only does he say don't delay, he says, reminds us that God is the place of protection. Verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. When we are with God, we know this. Whatever else is going on, I have acceptance with God in Christ. Whatever, whatever problems are coming, I still have access to the throne of grace. Further than that, we see the beauty of instruction and intimacy. Look at verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I mean, that's, that's not only God himself really predominantly through his word directly teaching us, but it's when, it, when, it's, when the phrasing is there, and I will do this with my eye upon you, it speaks of his personal involvement and personal intimacy. Isn't this beautiful? Our God is a God who's high and lifted up, who dwells in the heaven, who inhabits eternity, and yet what does he also do? He dwells with the humble and the contrite in heart. He comes and engages us and lovingly interacts with us. We have a warning of waywardness in verse 9. Be not like the horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit or bridle, or it will not stay near you. Don't be like that. You know how foolish they can be. God has given you his word. He has shown you his way. Walk with him. Then we have contrasting considerations in verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love or mercy surrounds the one who trusts in God. And he ends this with verse 11, which kind of takes, takes us back to the idea of blessedness and joyfulness and happiness. How does he end this? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. All you who are upright in heart. He took us whose hearts were cast down because he has covered our sins in Christ. Our hearts are lifted up. He has brought us through conviction and confession that we now have a zeal to turn away from those things and live a different life. We, though not perfect, are upright and our heart is directed in the right way. And further than that, look at, I love the way it piles up. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice. Shout for joy. This is a joy that cannot stand in silence. I, I, it was interesting before when he was in sin and he was silent about his sin, he was wasting away. When God brings us through that confection, confession and we experience the forgiveness that is in Christ, you know what else you can't do? You can't be silent. When you sin, you can't be silent. You've got to confess it and God will forgive it. But when you're forgiven, 
You can't be silent either. That joy of the reality of all that is ours in Christ must well up within us and overflow out of us. We are a living people. God saves us heart, soul, mind, and strength. The whole man. The scripture at times says, let all that is within me bless his holy name. And sometimes, sometimes when we gather, maybe it's just our lips that are barely moving. Just wanting us... I think when that happens, and that can't happen because of all, the, all of the life that happens. But we've got to make sure that we set aside when we're coming to draw near to Him in corporate worship. We remember the access we have. Who we were. What He did. Who we are in Christ. And we well up and we, and we overflow. And then when we go out, we look around us and we know they all need the same thing. And there is one gospel that brings about this work of grace through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, bringing conviction, confession, and a covering in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we glory in the gospel of grace that has been given to us. Glory in it, not just in it's great, but just in the fullness of our hearts welling up, that we rejoice, shouts of joy, and we speak to those around us. want to encourage you, if you get the opportunity when you're leaving, on the literature table, we have um, the most recent table talk, which is about soul winning, the urging and encouragement to get out there and make the gospel known. We long to see, love for us to see in the days ahead, ahead, many people coming to faith through the conviction of the Spirit, many people coming to baptism, many people proclaiming Christ, coming out of that heavy weight of sin into the joy and peace and power that the Spirit brings in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, so thankful for your word and thankful for how vivid it is. We, we recognize that the grace of God, the salvation of God, the working of the Spirit in our lives is not just a list of things that we believe. We are thankful that it includes a wonderful list of truths that resonate and rejoice our hearts. But the conviction of sin uh, works a heaviness deep within us and a grief. It stirs us, Lord, with a sense of genuine repentance and a, and a recognition through the gospel of what Christ has done. Give us afresh today, God, a sense of the salvation that we have in Christ. May we not only know it, but God, may we feel it within. Stir us afresh by your spirit with the joy that is in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.